Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, that question led me into deep dive into the history of my faith, history of the Bible, the biblical canon, history of the, the liturgy, the how doctrine and dogma developed and changed, and what happened at the Reformation, and everything beyond and in between. And it was then that I encountered the Catholic Church, some actual Catholic historians, Catholic theologians, and, and really the Church for the first time in her own words. Well, that kind of shook up things and led me to become Catholic, and this podcast really comes from that same place. The aim is to fill in the gaps between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I am joined by my friend Mike Aquilina to talk about, dig into, the African roots of the church. This is a fantastic and really fascinating conversation on where, where the church really began. Where did our liturgy, the, the Latin language and, and Latin ideas come from? Some of the greatest thinkers, and, and, uh, uh, writers, theologians, bishops from the early church, well, they emerged, as Mike tells us, from North Africa. Africa. It's a fantastic, really interesting reframing of some really important pieces of church history and the contributions of these incredible North African uh, theologians and bishops and writers and, and really people thinking like Athanasius who really held down the fort by the grace of God against some crazy ideas that were emerging in the larger church and some cool little tidbits along the way like the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia maybe. That's awesome and very interesting. I think you'll love it. I hope that you do. This conversation is brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and our one-time donors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. You guys, thank you, help to keep this show going and growing week after week. It's not my full-time job, so your support helps to make this thing possible to begin with, so thank you. If you feel led to support this show, those links are in the show notes to see how you can do that and help keep this thing going. And thank you in advance. And now, without any further ado, my conversation with Mike Aquilina on the African roots of the Catholic Church. It's a fantastic and really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Please listen and enjoy. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for watching. Thank you for listening. If you're watching on YouTube, welcome. Please subscribe to this channel, like this video, and share it with people that you think might also like this video. If you're listening on podcast, thank you for listening. Please do follow the show on wherever you find it and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify uh, if you listen to this podcast there. I am joined this week for a fantastic discussion with uh, one of our show's most beloved guests. I'm talking about Mike Aquilina. He is the executive vice president of the St. Paul Center and a contributing editor to uh, uh, for Evangelist, uh, Evangelist? <laughs> Angelus News. He's the author of more than five trillion books, including <laughs> The Fathers of the Church and How the Fathers Read the Bible. I guess read the Bible. Uh, Do they read the Bible or read the, I, That's a good question for you after, Mike. Scripture, liturgy, and the early church, and tons of fantastic fantastic books. Uh, for our purposes for this week, we're talking about uh, his latest, or one of his latest books, Africa and the Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. Mike, thank you for being here once again on this humble show here, and uh, welcome. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me back. Uh, you never learn. <laughs> I don't. I never learn. And I never, I never can read your bio all the way through properly either, so I figure at one point. And I actually, it does say here 50, more than 50 books, but I'm, I'm imagining since then, it probably has exponentially grown to, I decided to get 5 trillion, is probably more accurate. Uh, I love I love when once a month, Mike, I get an email in my inbox saying, here's a new book from Mike, because everything you write is fantastic. I love it all, Mike. And uh so I'm always happy to have you back on the show to talk about it. This installment of the show, your latest book, is uh, is eh, pretty cool. I mean, they're all pretty cool. But we're talking about uh, the idea of Africa and the early church. And there are a lot of angles to, uh, to take on this and to enter into this discussion. And I think one of them that is kind of fascinating is uh, it, it, like, like these days as 
uh, as a Catholic Christian in the world, you hear a lot about the African church. And, and this is actually mm-hmm. not just for Catholics, but for the wider Christianity, the African church is vibrant. It's growing. It's sending missionaries back to North America and Europe to evangelize, to re-evangelize this old kind of, the old stodgy, you know, the rest of, uh, of the, the Christian world need to get shaken up again by these African missionaries, right? This kind of cyclical approach. But of course, as you as you allude to, as you illustrate, illuminate in this book for us, it is actually a, a cyclical approach because uh, Christianity came out of Africa in many parts. Many of the great great uh, authors, great church fathers, great evangelists were from the African church. So it's not this, this this new new phenomenon we're experiencing that the African church is, is developing and growing and sending out teachers and missionaries and evangelists. Now, this is a cyclical thing that's happened since the beginning of, of, of Christianity, which I think is yeah. pretty interesting. Right. <laughs> well, we shouldn't be surprised to associate with Christianity with Africa. I mean, it's been there from the very earliest years of the church in Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, Sudan, Egypt, you know, all these places all had um, had the faith uh, within the first four centuries of of Christianity. And and not only did they have it, but they were um, they were they 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 um, they were really engines of uh, of intellectual activity, liturgical activity, creative activity that informed the faith as it developed in other places, and especially on, on the European continent. Yeah, I want to talk to begin with the guest now here. So, when we talk about Africa in the time of the early church, what are we mm-hmm. talking about? Because geographically, it's it's a it's a very large continent. Yeah. Uh, so, what are we talking about when we talk about Africa at the time of the early church? Well. We're talking about several different things, actually. We're talking about the Roman province of Africa, which included Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. Um, we're, we're talking about um, about Egypt, right? We're talking about one of the great centers of Christian activity from the first century forward. Uh, so we we have Egypt, and then um, and then we have later on uh, in the in the time of the fathers, we have Christianity developing in Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan. Um, it's 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 likely though that that Christianity had entered those countries fairly early on, even before before the the faith began to um, to to enter the consciousness of of Christians worldwide uh, before there. Uh, there was a documentary record, really, uh, to be left uh, for today. Um, but the um, the faith was probably there from from very early. I mean, if we if we read the Acts of the Apostles, right there, you know, we see on the Pentecost, uh, you know, the first Christian Pentecost, that there were there were Jews from Libya and there were Jews from Egypt there. Uh, in, um, in in Jerusalem for the feast day, and they went back to their countries, and it's quite likely that they brought the gospel back. Later on in the, the Acts of the Apostles, we encounter uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a, a, a member of the court of the, the Candace, the queen mother of Egypt, or of... Um, of Ethiopia. So it's quite likely that he took the faith back with him and he found others who were willing to listen to him. Um, so, so it's, 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 it's possible at least that the faith was, was in these lands, uh, from, from the very beginning, uh, the, the, um, the first historical records in many of these places, you know, that begins to appear, um, in the late one hundreds, you know the the late second century, the the early third century, especially in Roman Africa. Yeah, and so there's there's no say tradition of a certain apostle going to. I mean, I'm wondering. I guess you've got answered the question of, of how it kind of began to spread to Africa. There's no tradition of say you know Saint Thomas went to India. And, right. You know the, the, these kinds of things. Is there a tradition of a certain apostle going to evangelize here, or is this spread as you say through these different networks and different and different means? Uh, well, uh, you know, there is a tradition of the of Mark the evangelist going to going to Egypt. You know, there's uh, there's um, there seems to be some uh, indication in the histories that Apollos was from Alexandria in Egypt, and Apollos, of course, is one of the uh, these great super apostles who appears in the uh, the, the Saint Paul's Corinthian correspondence as well as in in the Acts of the Apostles. So, so it's likely that Egypt. Uh, experienced some evangelization very early and again as i said i think ethiopia probably did too because of the ethiopian eunuch um 
in the in the other places, no, there's no there's no uh, record, there's no tradition of um, of the the apostles evangelizing um, in uh, in the Roman province of Africa. Christianity seems to just suddenly rise up fully formed at the end of the 100s around 170 AD um, we we find out about the Silicon martyrs and then uh, almost immediately we have this figure of Tertullian who's a giant in the history of Latin Christianity one of the great theologians of church history uh, the, the the theologian who proposed uh, some of our theological vocabulary like Trinitas in Latin for Trinity um, uh, sacramentum he applied to the mysteries, uh, the liturgical mysteries of faith, um, and and we still use the word sacrament today. Uh, Tertullian gave us some of our vocabulary in the West. Uh, he was also just a, 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 a beautiful writer, and so um, so his his works his works have been studied in every generation since his lifetime. Um, again, Af- African Christianity, especially in Roman North Africa. Um, was was um, just appeared on the scene, fully developed. It seems, probably because of figures like Tertullian, um, and then um, and and then just was was influential, especially in the Western lands, especially in Italy, you know, especially in Rome. But we find we find the Latin literary tradition uh, developing first in Africa and then spreading to Rome. That's very fascinating. That that's where it where it develops from and then spreads because the the idea, right? Of course, is that the and I'm not sure if this is if this is a good or bad thing, but that the church kind of formed, you know, kind of formed in Rome, spread from there, and kind of colonized all these different places as kind of it spread. And I guess there's, there's definitely truth to there, but it's interesting that that that, that this particular tradition, which was very important for the church actually came out of you know Roman North Africa and and spread that way and then you have also these important larger life figures that ca- that came yes. from this church you mentioned Tertullian uh, who else are these or who else are we thinking of when we think of these, these figures from this African church that are that are just so important to the formation of the early church and early early Catholicism. Who else is in that camp? There, I, there, there are so many, but I want to I want to get back to something you said because sure. I think you're right. I think you're you're oh, wow. absolutely right that we'd expect the um, the epicenter of Latin culture to be in Rome and to spread outward from Rome because Rome is the capital of this vast empire. But that that doesn't seem to be the way it was. Um, Carthage in North Africa was a Roman colony. Rome and Carthage were at war for many years. And then, uh, you know, Rome defeated Carthage, made the land uh, a Roman colony uh, and um, and and then and then colonized it with Roman soldiers and their families. Uh, uh, But by this time, you know, we're we're already we're already a century into this this arrangement. And. and the uh, the colonizers interacted with all of the the native peoples, all of the peoples uh, who were there in the land, and they they created a distinctive culture. So what we see happening at the end of the 100s is a um, is is kind of a literary flourishing. There's a renaissance going on in uh, in the literary arts in North Africa. So we have the the playwright Terence writing um, uh, Apuleius, uh, the 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 great Roman. Roman novelist. He's a, he's a North African novelist. We have some of the great legal minds of the Roman world arising during this time, and that's in the pagan world. So there was this literary culture, and and it was it really into that literary culture Tertullian was born, and he was formed, and he received his philosophical education and his 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 literary education. So he 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 converted. Uh, to Christianity in adulthood, and he seems already to have had a reputation and a certain degree of fame. All right, so he becomes the dominant figure in that first generation, but he's hardly the only figure in that 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 first generation because because during his lifetime and and shortly after you know he shows up on the scene, uh, we find Perpetua and Felicity. Now Perpetua is a very interesting figure because you know she's not not only a North African writing in Latin. But she's also a woman, and I defy you to name any other woman <laughs> writing in Latin whose works have survived from that time period. Perpetua shows that the Christian revolution is taking hold, and women suddenly have this new, exalted 
public status in the church. Uh, Perpetua uh, emerges in her diary as um, as uh, a, a charismatic authority, as a teacher uh, in her in her her um her little group of christians who are all imprisoned together so perpetua and felicity are two other major figures of that time perpetua's diary which was finished by another hand many people think it was tertullian who finished her diary um it was published immediately upon her death and 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 rapidly became a bestseller worldwide so we have images of of uh, perpetua appearing uh in in italy you know very far away so Tertullian, Perpetua, Felicity, Cyprian of Carthage, the great bishop who lived not long after Tertullian and uh, and pronounced himself to be dependent on Tertullian's work, but proved to be quite a writer in in um, you know in his own works. Uh, he he left us many letters, treatises, uh, and um, and and we still read them today. They're considered authoritative. You'll find them quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, as as time goes on, you. Write into uh, apologists like Arnobius, Lactantius, the great rhetorician who was in the court of Diocletian, the emperor who who unleashed the the most severe. Uh, persecution of the church in the Roman period. Um, Lactantius was, was there at his court um, until, until the persecution came on. Uh, and then, of course, the great name from Roman North Africa is Augustine. And if Augustine had been the only Christian to come from North Africa, we would still owe everything to North, <laughs> North Africa because he's that much of a giant. He's the, the individual most quoted in the catechism outside of sacred scripture. Um, he's the, the church father who's quoted most often by Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica. So Augustine is just a giant in Western Catholicism, even if you're Protestant, even if you're Protestant, uh, you know, you, you have to look back to John Calvin and Martin Luther, who pronounced themselves dependent on Augustine's theology. And they pronounce him Augustine. Also, <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> that was always a mental flip becoming Catholic. The, the hardest part of conversion was to change how I pronounced Augustine. Uh, uh, unless you move to St. Augustine, Florida. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, I think that's interesting. And I think what's I, what's so fascinating is so many of these figures are naming. And I love mm-hmm. the, kind of the, the, the name dropping of the early church. Uh, it, it feels like, you know, are they listening? We're dropping their names out here. Who's who's listening? Who's? <laughs> I, I love this. So many of these figures are so important to our understanding of the early church in general, right? And they yes. come and they come from, say, North Africa. So yeah. I, I guess my question here is how how much of the the church universal do these figures uh, speak to because a lot of what we know of the early church comes from these these writers these authors there are others of course lots of others but i find it fascinating that was was the church i guess that kind of universal that these these writers could speak to the same church that existed in Rome, say that, yeah. like that far away, and it be applicable in both those cases. Does that make well, sense? Yes, it does. You know, I, I think that I, I think that the Roman Church was somewhat dependent on okay. the North African Church because it was experiencing this this Renaissance. Right? Um, we have great Latin authors from the third century writing in North Africa. I mentioned Tertullian, uh, Cyprian, uh, and Perpetua. Uh, we really don't have great Latin authors writing in Italy, in Rome at that time. It's said that Pope Victor was quite a writer, but we don't have anything he's written. And Pope <laughs> Victor was from North Africa anyway, you know. So um, so, so I, I believe that the, the Roman church was dependent in many ways uh, on, on, on uh, the influence of, um, of, of the North African church. You know, for example, uh, it's, it seems that the North African church had a Latin liturgy from the late 100s. Now, Rome did, did not shift over from Greek to a Latin liturgy until the 300s, maybe the middle of the 300s. Some people believe, you know, it was around 350 when, when, um, when the Roman church finally, you know, instituted a Latin liturgy. If, as we, we see that many other liturgical uh, customs first took hold in North Africa and then spread to Rome from there. So it, it really did become a, an epicenter of, um, of Christian thought, especially among the Latin-speaking peoples. 
So we have to really re- reframe maybe our understanding of how Christianity spread that because this is kind yeah. of a it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a, it's interesting to think of it kind of flowing in in reverse, right, to mm-hmm. what you'd expect, and really requires a, a reframing of. Uh, of this idea again that Rome just imposed these things on different places, I think that's just that's kind of interesting for all kinds of all kinds of reasons to think that actually no, that what was informing a lot of that came from came from North North Africa. That's absolutely, really absolutely, and you know, and you know, we um uh, we, we've just been talking about Roman Africa, which is you know those those countries, uh, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. Okay. Um, uh, it, this was this was also happening, you know, on steroids in Greek-speaking Egypt, you know, where Alexandria was the intellectual capital of the empire, where there was a phenomenal library, where there was where where there was an established Jewish community that constituted ten percent of the population, and uh, and and had a rich intellectual tradition, which was just kind of picked up and assumed by the early Christian church. So we have Philo of Alexandria writing in the middle of the one in the, the middle of the first century uh, and he's um and he seems to be part of a community called the therapeutae he talks about and and so many of the traditions that are described in Philo's work the traditions of the therapeutae are liturgical traditions that were eventually adopted by the Christian church so again from very early times in that case we're talking about the first century from very early times um, we have these um, intellectual capitals of the Christian world that are in Africa, and they are informing the faith as it develops in Rome. It's not, it's not beginning in Rome and then going outward from there. Rome, as a major port and as a capital city, is receiving these peoples from everywhere and is interacting with all of these peoples and is kind of folding all of this into the universal faith of the church. I, I mentioned Alexandria, and this for me mm-hmm. has always been kind of interesting. I was doing some some research on the monoepiscopate for a while, the monoepiscopacy, mm-hmm. the idea that yeah. in the Holy church there's a, one bishop per city, closely resembles kind of the, the Catholic model versus a plurality of, of you know of, of bishops that run run an area or whatnot. And I came across a passage in, in Jerome writing, and he says even as far as Alexandria, you know, uh, Mark introduced this kind of idea there. And I, that struck me as, right, what Jerome is seeing here is this practice is so widespread in the early church that even as far away as Alexandria, you know, when Mark went there, right, this was, this was the case. And I thought, that's, that's interesting, right? This speaks again to the universality of the right. church and the importance of, Ale- of Alexandria. Right. So, so you mentioned a little bit there about how it, how it's important, but what, what else can be said about the idea, the idea that, again, here's this, this kind of, we say vast, and now vast is in the ancient world vast, but this vast universal church, that's the same, you know, way over here as it is up here in Rome, it has this this relationship. What's the importance, I guess, of Alexandria being, practicing the same things as they are across the, the rest of the, the Catholic world? Well, you know, we have to understand Alexandria was the academic and intellectual capital right. of of the Greek speaking world, and and really of the of the entire Roman Empire. Um, uh, the uh, the kings there in uh, in Greek Egypt established uh, great research institutions, uh, and including a, a library that was that was unparalleled in ancient times. Uh, they, 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 they tried to get every book that had ever been written uh, to, be, to be on the shelves of that library. Um, uh, and, and of course, the Jews who moved to Alexandria um, were part of this, this intellectual culture, an active part of it. And the, it's the Jews in Alexandria who first translated what we call the Old Testament into Greek, so so uh, so there was a lot of literary activity going on there. It was very influential throughout the world, and from very early in the church's life, you find Alexandrian Christians um, taking an active and influential part in the development of doctrine, theology, uh, and even the development of institutions. So that you have a catechetical school forming in Alexandria, because that's what Alexandrians do. They form schools, right? And so uh, Pantanus appears. He's known as the Sicilian Bee. So he must have come over from Sicily, lived in Alexandria, established a school there. Eventually, 
went to India to evangelize India and, uh, and, and, and then came back to Alexandria. Uh, Clement of Alexandria appears at the end of the 100s, and, and we have his lecture notes. They may have been transcriptions of his lectures. They're, they're stunning. They're profound. They're erudite. He's obviously a well-read man. He knows the poets and playwrights. He knows the scientists of his time and the historians, and he's just taking bits and pieces from them as he teaches Christian doctrine. So we find him uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, making Christianity accessible to a very educated audience in Alexandria. So Clement is writing at the end of the 100s. He vanishes around that time. Um, and then then he's replaced soon after that by, by Origen, eventually. Um, Origen's father comes to lead the... Um, the uh, the catechetical school, but Origen himself, as a teenager, takes over when his father is martyred. Uh, he's brilliant. He's a polymath. He's um he's a prolific writer, and he establishes himself as one of the great intellectual figures of the church. He lives in the third century, and then after that, it just it just cascades. We have the great names of Athanasius of Alexander, Alexander. Alexandria, Alexander of Alexandria, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, all of these, these, these great men who were bishops in that city uh, and, and theologians and who, who established Christian doctrine um, uh, in the vocabulary that we still use today. Yeah, and again, a lot of those names as well are very important names in our understanding of, of, of early church history. I'm thinking of Clement of Alexandria, of, of origin. These, these names are people that, that we, we read extensively as we study right. the, the early church, and they teach us a lot of things. Now, origin, I think, went off the rails a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But very, you know, very important work that, that these authors, uh, these, these church fathers in their capacity, wrote that we, that we still have. Athens is of course a little bit important in, in church history, right? Right, and when we think about him, we think about the Arian crisis, right? So, so the the Arian heresy first emerged in Alexandria in Egypt. So it emerged first in Africa, and it was it was these um these these figures in in um in Alexandria, Alexander first, and then Athanasius, who had to deal with this problem. And again, they dealt with it by giving us a theological vocabulary for speaking of the Trinity, for speaking of the Incarnation, for understanding the nature of, nature of God and, and of the God-man, the natures of the God-man. So, so all of these things, which are very important to us in our, our creedal faith, emerged from Africa. You, you mentioned before, and I've mentioned too, the idea that there, there are bishops in the churches in North Africa. Uh, can you talk a bit about how those churches were structured, how they looked, how they, how they worshipped? Were there, were there differences in how they saw the authority of, of Rome, maybe being a bit further away from that center? Were there differences? You mentioned that this idea of the Latin liturgy emerging from North Africa. Were these churches practicing this, the same kind of Catholic faith, or were there significant differences in how they actually practice that faith and, or, and organize themselves? Well, as early as the as as the year one hundred and seven, you know, we find Ignatius of Antioch traveling from his his native city uh, in Syria uh, to be to be executed in Rome, to be martyred in Rome, and along the way, he writes seven letters to churches and and one to a bishop. Um, and uh, and what's interesting about Ignatius and those letters is that he assumes that the faith is the same everywhere, that people believe the same things, and that people practice the same sacraments, uh, that the doctrines are the same from city to city, um, that it, that part does not change. Now, yes, there were liturgical differences everywhere, and the experience of the faith was largely local. You know, we think of, of universality today in terms of the the just the the brute fact that uh, that everyone in the world who owns a smartphone uh, can 
can check the, the what the Pope is tweeting today, you know, and, and it was nothing like that in the ancient church. What you experienced was a local phenomenon. The bishop was probably the most important figure in in your in your parish, in your in your in your church, and in the church as you experienced it. Um, if you lived in North Africa, if you lived in Roman Syria, you might not be entirely sure that you knew the name of the reigning pope because you know by uh, when a pope died the news might not reach your village for several weeks so so i i don't think we had the uh the, they had the same kind of clericalist mentality that we have today where where there's um where 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 uh, Roman primacy is expressed in um, in the celebrity of the pontiff. Uh, that's um, that just wasn't the case back then. Uh, so you ex- the, you experience the church as your people, you know, expressed Christianity and liturgy and 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 so on. The doctrine was the same, and the liturgy followed the same form everywhere. But there were definite cultural differences, and there would have been there would have been fairly large cultural differences between Roman Africa on the one hand and um, and Ethiopia on the other hand. Yeah, and that's interesting. And I want to dig into that a little bit in a little bit because there's some fascinating things in Ethiopia for sure. But I'm thinking of these these African these North African uh, dioceses, right? These these churches would would be sending people to church councils, sending bishops to to talk and discuss yes. and share these ideas. This this was for all the different local kind of uh, f- flavors. This was very much a, a universally unified church, despite the the geography, right? Despite these differences. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so yes, you, you do have uh, bishops from these places uh, interacting uh, with Rome and interacting, you know, at the councils uh, well into, uh, into the patristic area, era to the, to the very end of the era. As a matter of fact, um, you'll, you'll find, you'll find um, uh, the Carthaginian church, for example, uh, emerging as very important uh, during the monothelite uh, controversy because it was in Carthage uh, that St. Maximus, the confessor, found refuge. And there uh, he came into into contact with Latin Christianity and it had a profound influence on him. So he's kind of this hybrid figure, this meeting of cultures in one man, and he becomes an important figure in the church's response to the monothelite controversy. And again, all of this is because of the influence of Africa. Yeah, and of course, Athanasius is pretty important in a couple of, in a, in a couple of, of you know church, church councils. Uh, some of the work that that he that he does. Yeah, especially Nicaea, the first yeah. council. And when you think about it, uh, the the emperor called the Council of Nicaea, and the bishops really did not have an uh, any notion of what the a general council would become what would be the authority of the general council this was the first the first and uh and of and uh, and of course there have been many general councils since then uh but but it was in africa or, or it was it was it was not in africa but it was um it was out of this need uh from africa that the the council was called in the first place and uh and the stars of that council of course were bishops from egypt uh, Athena or Alexandria, and and then his secretary Athanasius. Yeah, yeah, and of course, uh, extremely important. I don't know how to how to, <laughs> how to underscore that more, but extremely important would be Athanasius's uh, contribution to the, these kind of you know, the development of some of our very important doctrines in, uh, in in the church, right? Oh, certainly, because he's the one who took Nicene Christianity and ran with it. Yeah. You know, Jerome said uh, that that th- throughout the, the the rest of the fourth century, so many of the bishops went over to Arianism anyway. So many of the emperors, so many imperial officials, church officials, were lost to Arianism, and it it seemed as if it was Athanasius against the world. Right, he he alone was taking the the faith forward, the the faith that had been had been um, had been set down at Nicaea from the apostolic tradition. Um, so uh, so yeah, Athanasius becomes the figure who 
is almost the only link in his generation carrying things forward. And he has a profound influence, of course, on um, the Cappadocian fathers, on Basil and Gregory and Gregory and uh, and and others he encountered along the way. Uh, Augustine, of course, uh, Augustine for for our non-Catholic listeners, <laughs> is very important in the, in the church. And I'm wondering if if it's, if it's possible to kind of sum up a bit of the picture that he gives us of the church at that time. I don't know if that's possible because there's a lot that he he's written quite a lot. He's very very important, of course. But is there is there a sense is there a way to describe or distill something of what he tells us or shows us what how the church looked during his time? Uh, because so many of his writings have been preserved, we actually get a good uh, a good notion of how the church was functioning in North Africa uh, during his during his years as bishop. All right, because he talks about how he was essentially holding court. He was he was he was almost a judge in court, settling disputes among Christians through 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 his ordinary business days okay that's what he would spend his days doing because the christians tended not to use the the law courts right. they would go before their bishop and talk about their family disputes or <laughs> or their their um their professional disputes whatever was going on and augustine augustine was was sitting in judgment over these um so we can see that the church was very important at that time uh, to the village community, city community, uh, the, certainly the Christian community. There was also a lot of division in the African church at that time, and that's evident in Augustine's work because he wrote controversial works against many heretics and schismatics who were dividing the African church at that time. Uh, he managed to reconcile a surprising number of them uh, uh, during his, his long ministry. Augustine's just a giant figure all altogether. All he's um he's probably the greatest living rhetorician in his time. He's uh he has um he has an influence over over the the Latin Church especially. Uh, he establishes uh, theology in um, in the West on a solid foundation before it goes into the Dark Ages. Uh, Augustine wrote the seminal works in so many different areas on the morals of the Catholic Church. He wrote uh, the great work, the foundational work uh, in the West on the Trinity, De Trinitate. Um, <clears throat> he wrote several works on how to catechize people, on Christian doctrine, on um, on, on on many um, many of the uh, the the fine points of theology as well. Uh, so he wrote controversial works. He wrote wor works of doctrine. He wrote systematic works, speculative works, uh, and and he invented new literary genres. Not only did he write poetry, he also um, wrote the first autobiography, the first memoir. Really, people consider his Confessions to be the first of its kind. Um, so Augustine was just a giant. He was a genius, and we're dependent on him today. Uh, just so many of the things that that he uh, he left for us uh, are, are they they come to our lips, and that's true of a lot of the African writers. Actually, they're eminently quotable, right? To think of Tertullian: "The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church." <laughs> What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? See those Christians, how they love one another. I mean, these these are lines that are used in Western hymns. They come to our lips, you know, without thinking about it. Um, uh, and 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 we Cyprian's similar too. He Cyprian's the one who said, "Outside the church, there is no salvation." He's the one who said, "Prefer nothing to Christ," which was quoted by Saint Benedict and made a foundation stone of his 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 great rule. Augustine uh, gave us lines like, um, Rome has spoken, the matter is settled. Uh, give me chastity and continence, but not yet, right? <laughs> you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts yeah. are restless until they rest in you. Yeah. If you see charity, you have seen the Trinity. You know, uh, the, these are all lines that came out of uh, Roman Africa. And again, they're, they're the lines that form our interior life. They form our intellect as Western Christians. And if people are looking for a good tattoo to get on their, you know, somewhere on their body, this, these are just... That's right. Perfect. Just rewind this episode and just there's the whole litany there of, of choices. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Another great Augustine one. God loves each of us as if there were as, as if there were only one of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's brilliant. That's amazing stuff. And of course, the fact that he's read all these all these years later, a handful of years later, I mean, just speaks to his his importance, right? That's amazing. And I, you mentioned before too the idea some of these things 
you know, some of these things that were, that were saved from these era, these, these, these diaries, these writings, <laughs> these lecture notes, these things that were saved from, from the early church, just speak to the importance of these, these writers, these church fathers, these people that are, they're, they're writing these things and the importance of what they wrote, that they were saved from then, from back then, and, and still preserved today. That really speaks to their importance to those people who were saving them and, and passing them on, right? That's right, because there was no printing press at yeah, the time. Yeah. So in order to preserve these books, you had to copy them out by hand, right? And there was no such thing as acid-free paper. So <laughs> those copies that you were making would probably dissolve into into practically nothing or, or get very faded after 10 years. And they'd have to be copied again and again and again. And, and some of this is during a period when the, the faith was illegal and it was a capital crime to own Christian books. You know, that's true of Tertullian's works. It's true of Cyprian's works, that they were set down on paper during a time when it was dangerous to own those books. And so they had to be copied over and over again every 10 years at least and, uh, and spread abroad that way. And, they, and that had to happen in every generation. And yet it did happen in every generation. So these books were, were copied continuously, and we still have them today in many manuscripts. Which I think that's remarkable. Isn't it? In and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it shows, first of all, that we need to really value these things. I, I love, I personally love patristics. It's a it's an area that I just love to study and read more on whenever I can get my hands on these kinds of things. A real interest for me. But it just speaks to the importance of these these works being more widely read, just thinking of that painstaking effort that was gone, uh, that was undertaken to, to save these and, and pass them on. We, we shouldn't take these lightly. Right. right. What, right. What I'm saying, right? I think that's, right. that's yeah, just to underscore that. And that's one of one of the points of my book, not to take these lightly and not to take Christian Africa lightly, yeah. you know, to understand that these are our own roots in the West. You know, we have roots that reach down into into Africa from those those first centuries. We are dependent on so much that originated there. Yeah, yeah. And that's, again, it's a real reframing of how we need to be thinking about the history of, of Christianity. I think that's very important to to kind of reorient our mind that way. And to, honestly, I think that, that for me, uh, re, reestablishes or underscores the universality of, of the church, right? That it, that it has these roots that aren't just here in this, this one place here. I think that's a really good way of framing that. Ethiopia is a really interesting uh, kind of kind of test case. Uh, least of all because the Ark apparently is there, Mike, which is really fascinating. But I have a friend of mine who actually is Ethiopian, whose our, our dialogue often revolves around Catholic and non-Catholic Christian ideas. We often debate. One of the, my good friends, who we, we occasionally, once a year, have a knockdown dragon mode debate over, over Christianity, uh, you know, evangelical versus Catholicism and these kinds of things. So because I'm a convert and he's not yet converted, so we always have these, these debates. Until he converts, Mike, we'll keep having these debates. <laughs> and one of the, the things that he brought up once we were talking about, about the Eucharist and the real presence was this Ethiopian church and the, the ancientness of the Ethiopian church. Yes. And I caught him out, Mike, because he was talking about how, well, not everyone believes in the real presence, not everyone believes in it from the beginning. And look, here's the Ethiopian church. They, they, they developed apart from Catholicism. So what do you say about that? And I said, well, let's look, look what they believe. And we looked into the documents, and we, of course, we found Eucharistic language of the real presence in the Ethiopian church from, the, you know, you from, from, from very early on. I said, ha, I, I got you. And he went, oh, yeah, you did. You, you're, <laughs> you're right. Well, the doctrines are there. The structure of the church is the same. You know, the liturgy follows the same form as the liturgy everywhere. You know, the Ethiopian church is the Christian church. And, and it has... It has um, it, it has its own distinctive culture, though, because because the Ethiopians were interacting with Jews for a long time. All right. Remember, in the Old Testament, we've, we find the Queen of Sheba. All right. This queen of Ethiopia visiting King Solomon and becoming one of his wives. Right. And then going back to Ethiopia, you know, uh, with with uh, with Solomon's son. Right. And so so there was a. a a, a, a presence of Judaism, a knowledge of, um, of, of the religion of Israel that was there in Ethiopia, you know, from the time of the Davidic monarchy 
and uh, and then going forward, uh, what we find in in Ethiopian Christianity is uh, is a preservation of some of that culture, uh, the Second Temple culture. Uh, for example, uh, they consider canonical in Ethiopia some of the um, the. Uh, uh, the, the the works of um, of Second Temple Judaism that we don't have in our canon, you know the 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 Book of Enoch, for example, uh, you know they they venerate that as as divine revelation. Uh, so 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 you have all of these connections to Judaism from very early on. Uh, that's why we can see why uh, we we find the court official of the Candace uh, in in Jerusalem on Pentecost. Uh, Sunday uh, during the first Christian Pentecost or, you know, shortly after the first Christian Pentecost. So, um, so yeah, there's that connection there and it influences liturgy it influences church decoration in, in Ethiopia as well. And it influenced uh, the, um, uh, the, the court of the monarchy as well for thousands of years. And it's a very, it's a unique development, right? It's kind of like a microcosm of Christianity. Can we talk more about how, how that came about or what's so unique about that idea that it's kind of separate, but developing similarly to, to Catholicism in the, in the larger world? How did that come about? And what's so interesting about that? Well, it's interesting. They're, they they have something that would almost read like a founding myth, but it, it seems to be true. Okay. That there were, there were two brothers who were on a, a ship they were they were Frumentius and Edesius. They were on a ship that was um, overtaken by pirates. Everyone on the ship was killed except for for these two brothers, right? And because the pirates thought, well, we can sell them as slaves, and they sold them uh, in Ethiopia as slaves uh, to the, the 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 household of the king. Uh, the king became attached to them uh, and came to 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 admire them, uh, and they were Christians. Uh, so he 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 uh, he eventually freed them. They became bishops, and and there's confirmation of this in uh, in the documentary records of other countries because as bishops they had encounters with bishops elsewhere, and and uh, and so we have kind of a confirmation of uh, of of what would appear to be a founding legend, but it seems that it's true. It seems that it's history. And there is another myth to do with Ethiopia. I think it's very interesting. And that's potentially that the, the Ark of the Covenant, Mike, is perhaps maybe in, in Ethiopia? Is this a... <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's something that, that is claimed by the by Christians in Ethiopia to this day. It was in the news not long ago because there's a lot of civil strife in Ethiopia right now. And, and some of um, some some rebel soldiers were closing in on that church not long ago. And it was one of these things that people were watching uh, very carefully. Uh, so so that is the legend there. Uh, uh, there there's there's um, there's not there. We haven't seen a lot of evidence of that claim in antiquity, but it's certainly a claim that we find there now. Uh, uh, we also uh, see the replicas of the Ark of the Covenant in in all Ethiopian churches. As uh, that's my belief, anyway. I have not been to Ethiopia, but that's that's what I've read that uh, that there's a replica of the Ark in all the churches. <laughs> Very interesting. So obviously it's venerated, yeah. venerated there. Yeah, I'll have to get Jimmy Aiken to do an episode of his podcast, uh, digging into the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Mike, it's interesting. Is there anything else that we should touch on before I let you go that we should know about the the African Church, the development of Catholicism, and Christianity, uh, out of uh, these African uh, churches? Uh, just as I said, you know, it, Africa itself was uh, was undergoing a, a, a renaissance in the arts at the time. So Africa was already exercising a strong influence. It, it's it was it was only natural uh, that um, that that African Christianity would have that kind of profound influence on on the other lands. Uh, but grace builds on nature, so there becomes a there there comes a supernatural dimension to it as well. Uh, all of these figures are just part of our interior life, part of our intellectual life. Uh, they they fed us the lines that we quote all the time. Uh, we use their doctrine all through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, we are dependent on African Christianity in so many ways, and that's what I want people uh, to um, to discover um, by buying 
this book and yeah. reading it. <laughs> and it's fantastic, Mike. Uh, everything you, you do is, is uh, I don't know, maybe one, I don't know, I don't, uh, decent book in there. I don't, I don't know. I've, I've not found it yet, but I have not read I've, all your five trillion books, honestly, cover to cover. So I've yet to find it, Mike, but it, I mean, it might be, I can't guarantee listeners will, will not find maybe one, uh, I don't know, book you, have, you phoned in one day because, you, did, you know, I understand you have food on the table, Mike. I know, I know the, the drill. Uh, no, in all seriousness, they're fantastic, Mike. We we do Thank great. You. Dead You're very kind. All all the work you do, and I, you know, I'm thinking back to uh, your introduction, and I miss like half the things that you do. Your your way of the father's podcast is is fantastic. I mean, the things I didn't mention that you do, <laughs> that I should have mentioned are, are are exponential. So where else do you want to point listeners towards? I'll put links to this book in the show notes. What else do you want to point them towards to find or follow more things that you're doing, Mike? There's a lot out there they can look at. So, what, yeah. what you- my my own website is fathersofthechurch.com. Fathersofthechurch.com. Um, usually, the best prices on my books are at catholicbooksdirect.com. Catholicbooksdirect.com. That's a, a distributorship, um, but it's also owned by my son, so he has a page just for my books on, <laughs> on his website. So, so you can check that out. Catholicbooksdirect.com. Oh, I love that. That's that's great. Well, you're out front about that, Mike. I appreciate that. That's wonderful, uh, Mike. I want to say thank you once again for being on this show. I think you're 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 closing in on I think Doug Beaumont's record here for number of appearances in this show. But I think John Berkman's in the running too. So I'll have to do Italian see who's been on this show the most. But thank you, Mike, for always coming back time after time, and uh, I really appreciate you. And uh, God bless all the things that you're doing for the church, Mike. It's a uh, it's, well, it's an honor. It's an honor for me to be here. Uh, to be on the on the show that that you're hosting, but also on the show that they're that they're appearing on. The, you're talking about some of my heroes there. Yeah, yeah. Well, keep coming back, and you'll outnumber their appearances. So, thanks, <laughs> thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate right. it. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for having me on, Keith. Well, folks, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation with Mike Aquilina. I uh, intentionally kept it under the hour mark, okay? For listeners to this show for a long time, will notice that this episode has been shorter than usual. I'm curious to know what happens if I release a shorter episode, if... if listeners enjoy that more enjoy that less so if you don't mind leaving me some feedback cordialcatholic at gmail.com do you enjoy a shorter episode is it easier to digest or do you miss a longer form conversation please do reach out let me know if you think what, what you think of that i'd love to hear your feedback as a listener a valued listener to this show cordialcatholic at gmail.com that link is of course in the show notes as well TheCordialCatholic.com is our website for show notes from my blog and things that we're doing and, and we are up to here at this show. We're on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at CordialCatholic. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook and YouTube.com slash TheCordialCatholic to watch what you are listening to on this episode, in this conversation. If you feel called to support this show financially, head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic to see how you can do that. Your, your, your financial support, of course, your prayers also and your, your support and those kinds of things help the show to go, but your financial support especially helps make this thing possible week after week. So thank you to those who are already supporting the show and those considering it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again next week, guys. Please pray for me. I am praying for you too. Take care. See you again. And God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash a special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.